And this is Old Testament. This isn't after Jesus. This is who God has always been and will always be. He is the great, the one, the only, the most high God of justice. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you, this is being told to the people of Israel, and then later on to us as the covenant people of God. You are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Just out of curiosity, as we move through this concept of justice today, how many of you are expats in the room? Would you raise your hand? If you were born in a land other than Hong Kong, that would make you an expat. There's some of you that aren't even raising your hands, and I'm like, you're an expat. (laughs) If Hong Kong is not your home and native land, you are what's called an expatriate. Okay? There's uh, Geopolitics 101. I love being your pastor because on any given Sunday, I get to talk to people from Africa, from the Philippines, from America and Canada, North America, let's say, get it all, uh, from Europe, from South Africa, from Australia, New Zealand, and a lot of other countries I've left off the list today because we are together as God's chosen people. But you know what? We can relate right off the bat to this first because we are aliens, (laughs) This is not our homeland. But then just in case you think, well, Mike, you've already alienated me because I was born here. I live here and this is home and I love Hong Kong. Well, one, Hong Kong is my home. It's the longest I've now lived anywhere. And two, it it is home because my kids, two of the three were born here. The second, the third, the first (laughs) wasn't born here, but this is the only home she's ever known. And so Hong Kong is home. But the other thing is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... Where is your citizenship? Your citizenship is not in Hong Kong. It is not uh, in Megua, in America. It is not in the Philippines, in China. It is in heaven. And that is the God we serve. He says our, our identity is in Christ. It's not in ourselves. It's not in where we're from or the lot we've found in life. And in so doing, we see a picture of who God is. He's not a God of partiality. Yes, he loved the Jews and loves the Jews and has a special plan for them. But through Jesus Christ, we were all invited into that plan. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people were called to be his light so the rest of the world would glorify God. The problem was they missed the boat. And it started with how they handled other people. So today, we're going to look at a biblical theology of what justice is. Because depending on who you are, how you're wired, and your upbringing, you've probably got one of two attitudes toward justice. One, I would call it the Hollywood attitude. Uh, And the Hollywood attitude is pretty simple. When you go in and you watch a Hollywood movie, a couple of things always happen. Not so much anymore. Now they're trying to put twists and things in. But basically, there's a bad guy, the villain, and he dies. Just about every Hollywood movie of the action or dramatic genre, that's kind of what happens. So those of us that like that, we cheer that the bad guy dies, and we think that's justice. He got what's coming to him, correct? And so our association with justice starts there. Or or another way to say that is we want everything to be fair, 
If you look at a personality test or inventory for myself, I have what's called a heightened sense of justice and a low sense of empathy. If you come tell me all of your problems, I struggle to relate to you. But if you come talk to me about fairness, I'm going to go beat down walls to protect you. Because that's how God has created me. Now, I still have to be sympathetic and learn empathy. But in how I'm made, I have a huge passion for what is right and to protect that. I actually like rules, certain ones. Now, there's the other group, the non-Hollywood group, and we call those, today the trend is to call them social activists. Those that are all about the poor, the widows, the the mercy that we should all be doing. And they're great, but laws are secondary to this side of justice because there's so many laws that don't work to help the needy. It's equally important that both sides come together, but yet each of us interprets the world usually with one of these lenses. Either it's all about mercy or it's all about justice, and we rarely bring them together. That's why I'd like to take you straight in. By the way, let's remind you of what the gospel is, just in case you've forgotten before we get into Micah. The gospel is powerful, okay? I know I'm taking a U-turn, but I want us to remember this. How do I know it's powerful? Because I see the gospel continue to change lives in amazing, amazing ways. I think of my friend Ashok Andrews in JKPS Ministries in Kolkata, India. And we often think that we want to change the world and we get these big things. I can't do anything because there's too many problems in the world. Well, Ashok Andrews was from southern India but saw a need in Kolkata and said, people need churches. They need a place where they can grow and learn who God is and how to follow him. 300 plus churches later, that ministry continues. Countless numbers of church planters are trained in their new building. And it's amazing to see what God is doing. And we get to try to walk alongside them. That's a man that says he knows the gospel is powerful and is changing lives. Keith and I got to watch a church opened up for the first time in a swamp. I I don't know a better way to call it. And there is more people than are in this room in a room that would fit just this aisle. And it was amazing. They were hungry for the word of God because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ who came to seek and save that which is lost is powerful. And in its power, the good news of Jesus Christ, that his grace is sufficient, it transforms us. It changes how we see the world we live in. It changes our perspective on life. And in so doing, it changes how we live. As we see the world through the lens of grace, through the fact that we don't deserve anything but death. Remember, Paul teaches us that we were dead in our sins, transgressions, if you will, but we were made alive in Christ, set apart for works of service to follow him and bring glory to his name. We aren't just to be changed, we're to live out the change so that others may see him in us and rejoice. So with that, we come to a book of the Bible that if you've read, you've probably got through it pretty quickly. Not of us, not a lot of us spend a lot of time studying the book of Micah, do we? But yet the verses that Sydney read today are some of the most famous verses in the Bible. But I want to give you context because if you flip back a chapter... What do we find out about the very heart of God in chapter 5 of Micah? 
we find one of the truly great messianic prophecies of all time. That a deliverer will come and he will come from Bethlehem. (laughs) You got to understand Bethlehem. Worthless, outside the city gates, not a great place and certainly not a place of a royal line. The only thing it had going for it was long, long ago, it was the city of David. But that ship had sailed. Now it's kind of run down. Not a place where anyone of reputation would be born. Yet the king, the Messiah, was to come from a little run-down town off the beaten path. That's Bethlehem. God is introducing his people to what's coming. And so you get to chapter 6 of Micah. And Micah the prophet begins to think, what am I supposed to do with you, God? Because these acts of worship that we're so accustomed to doing, he's kind of saying what God told Malachi to say about the people, your offerings are worthless because the heart isn't behind them. And so here we see, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And we think, well, what, should they be two years old since one year isn't good enough? No, understand that in the the, the sacrificial system, the year-old calf was at the top of the food chain. It was tremendously valuable. There's a certain kind of steak that we might like these days called filet mignon, right? What is filet mignon? Anybody know? It's a younger cow, correct? Is that true? No, it isn't. Okay, then I'm wrong. Never mind. Disregard that illustration. I thought it was a younger cow. In any case, that doesn't have any bearing on this. Because the young cow was the most valuable to a family. It was the most valuable thing in their possession because it could bring them economic security. But it was to be offered to the Lord. And Mike is here saying, can I bring him a calf that's a year old, the most valuable thing I can offer? No. With the Lord, we please with even greater with tens of thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, all these things of great value. And the answer keeps coming back, no. (laughs) Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Can I give him my child? This would have been a firstborn son. And he's saying, can I give him that? Will that be enough? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can even my child pay the price for my sin? And the answer was no. That's not what God requires. He requires way more than that. He requires a perfect, just sacrifice. And what does he expect of us? Well, we're told that he has shown you, O man, what is good. What's the Lord require of you? And this is a summation of pretty much the entire Old Testament teaching. That the Lord requires of us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Huh. So he doesn't just want us to give all the best we have if we can't do this, right? That's exactly right. You can give everything you have for the sake of the poor, but if you have not love, 
It's a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong. It's just nothing. It's not of any value. I want us to consider what it means to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God this morning. It won't take us a lot of time because it's hopefully pretty common sense for us. But to get a perspective, I want you to keep in mind, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but once there was a peasant girl, a Jewish girl transplanted into the land not her own. She was beautiful, amazingly, staggeringly beautiful. So much so that when uh, the king of the land deposed his current queen because uh, I used to tell the youth group she wouldn't make him a sandwich, uh, when that happened, he needed a new queen. And so he went out into all the land and looked everywhere he could find. And he found this girl named Esther. And he said, she's going to be my queen. And Esther, a peasant girl, not from the right people, became the queen of all the land. And her cousin came alongside and Mordecai, this man, kind of became the social conscience of the land, saving the king's life at one point and never receiving any recognition for it and never asking for any. But towards the end of the story, this guy Haman, who has it out for Mordecai, because Mordecai was the righteous, the upright, and the humble, and the man of integrity, and Haman was none of those things. And so Haman seeks to find a way to kill the Jew among them, and he devises a plan. And the plan involves, on one day, all of the people of the land being able to go attack and kill and murder the Jews. Injustice of the highest level, because as we read in the first verse we looked at today, God values all people, even the aliens. And at this point, the Jews were aliens in their land. And so this was an affront against God himself. Mordecai goes to Esther, the queen, and he says, don't think that because you're a queen, you're not exempt from this. In other words, they're going to come after you when they find out you're a Jew too. So watch out. What are you going to do? And then Mordecai makes this famous statement. Who knows? You may have been placed there for such a time as this. And Esther is confronted with tremendous social injustice, the eradication, the genocide of her people. But yet, to get to see her husband, she would have to be invited. And that doesn't happen very often because she's likely not his only wife or concubine. And so she has a choice to make. Will she defend the cause of the helpless? Or will she hope that somebody else rises up and does it? And in this case, Esther, after fasting and prayer along with Mordecai and the Hebrew people, goes to the king says, can I cook you dinner? You know, because the last queen didn't do that very well. So Esther starts there. And in the process, she begins to lay out her plan. And at the very end of her plan, she says, the people that are being killed are my people. And the man that is doing it is Haman. King, what can we do? And the king is cut to the heart because he loves his wife. And he says, well, I can't revoke my own word. And she said, well, then let us defend ourselves. And yet again, we see God at work through men and women of little or no means raised up to positions 
to be his agents of change, his agents of deliverance, and his agents of protection for the least of these, those that couldn't protect themselves. And so when when Micah talks to us about acting justly, keep the picture of Esther in your mind because we can look the other way very easily. But God still demands justice. And I want to talk about that word. What does God require? Well, he requires us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. What you could originally translate the Hebrew to say would be this. What the Lord requires is explained in three brief phrases. To do what is just. These are action words empowered by God himself. To show what kind of love? Constant love. It's the idea of mercy that is unconditional. It's constant. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then to live in humble fellowship with our God. In other words, remembering who our God is. He's God, not you and me. We don't go to him telling him what we do. We say, here I am, Lord. I want to walk with you. And so let's look. And today you're going to get a Hebrew lesson, briefly. Tim Keller in his wonderful book, Generous Justice, brings this out in great much greater detail than I'm going to do this morning. But the first word you look at, the idea of walking or loving, of acting justly is the word justice, mishpat in Hebrew. And as you look there, the idea of justice, of mishpat, is acquitting or punishing one based on the merits of the case. Think legal terms. If I go up and stab you, I should go to jail, Correct the courts should find me guilty and I should pay for my sin, correct? There you go. You understand mishpat. But there's another side to it that we often leave out. We should acquit the one that is not guilty. My homeland is really good at putting people in jail, whether they're guilty or not. And sadly, we do that over and over again. Then we watch TV shows about how it's happened. There's a famous movie built on that premise, The Shawshank Redemption. If you've never seen it, it's a powerful look at this idea of justice and redemption. So what else is justice? Well, it's giving people their rights what they are due. We're usually pretty comfortable saying punish them, but are we as comfortable saying protect them or care for them? According to the South China Morning Post, approximately 33% of Hong Kong might live below the poverty line. Think about that. One in three people could likely live below the poverty line in Hong Kong. Now, other sociologists say those numbers are elevated or they're lower depending on who you ask. I'm not a statistician and I don't want to get caught in that argument. But what I want to look at is the reality that there is tremendous need right around us. Some of you have needs that we don't even know about. But no one is there to help you. Justice, mishpat, is not only penalizing the wrong act, but it is also protecting those that cannot protect themselves. It is helping those that need justice. Think about it this way. How many countless thousands of people live in cage dwellings around our city because they've been priced out of being able to live anywhere else? And yet sometimes we comfortably say, well, shouldn't they be happy to have a home over their, a roof over their head? Well, yeah, that's better than being completely homeless. 
but it's also a bit of extortion. And we have to think about that, protecting the needs of the least of these. That's the role of God's people. And there's one more thing. It's an emphasis on action. Justice requires action. I was deeply convicted of this, in, and I hate to tell you, but I failed. I was sitting in Nanjing at a Costa Coffee. I'd found a coffee shop. I can find those pretty much anywhere. And I was sitting there reading about justice, trying to get ready for today. I had a bit of a downtime between my, my meetings. And in so doing, a likely homeless man came in and just started tapping me, asking for money. And it made me really uncomfortable. And so I kind of looked the other way. And since I don't speak Mandarin, I thought, well, he'll just go away. (laughs) And then about 20 minutes later, I read this concept. And I missed the chance. I could have given the guy something. I'm not too concerned about cultural sensitivity when there's a man in need and I could have given him a couple of kwai. But I was so focused on myself and what others might think of me and the inconvenience it might be to myself that I did nothing. And we could all justify, well, you know, in that setting, it might not be appropriate. He shouldn't be going into a... Uh, yeah, that's all true. But the God I worship tells me that I am to seek justice. And justice in that case was helping a guy. It doesn't matter what got him to that position. He was in need. And I could have helped. And I did nothing. I'm not going to lie. The rest of my time was spent in confession that day. But you know what? I received grace that that man didn't. And that's got to gauge how I walk forward. From now on, will I act with justice to those who need it? Because justice is about an action empowered by the Lord himself. Why do I say that? Well, if I ask you a simple question, Charles Price asked this, uh, the famous preacher from the People's Church in Toronto. He asked, when you plead to God, do you plead to him for justice or mercy? What do you think? Now, if you're paying attention at all, you know, well, the message is on justice, so the answer must be justice. But we often want to ask God for mercy, right? But what we really need, if you look at theology, is we need his justice. We need a way for our sins, our transgressions to be paid for because we can't do it on our own. And mercy isn't good enough. We need that price to be paid. We need mishpat. We need justice. And that comes through Jesus Christ. Why does the bottom of our church sign say grace changes everything? Because when we're exposed to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he changes our lives and invites us to live a new way. He changes everything. It's simple. It really is. And then we give that away. I missed my opportunity to give it away. I pray I won't miss it again. But there's the second bit. You see, the next bit is mercy. And we love talking about mercy. Typically, here's how it goes. We want justice for everyone else and mercy for ourselves. Right? There's a famous, I don't know if it's famous, but it's certainly showing up a lot in my Facebook feed. An article written by a blogger sometime last year, I think he's Australian, but on the idea of how selfish being late is. Have you seen that? A few of you have posted it and how just horribly inconsiderate the idea of being late all the time is. And he's writing to a certain type of people that are serial late people. And sometimes I I feel I probably felt into that and was challenged with that. But the point was, 
is that we expect, because we're late all the time, others to extend mercy to us. But if somebody keeps us waiting, it's all about justice. How dare you keep me waiting, right? We like justice for other people, but when it's us, oh, please give me mercy. (laughs) That's typically how we approach life. You can read the article if you want to see that guy's thoughts on the rest of his take. But this idea of mercy is bigger than that. Do we give away the mercy that's been given to us? Because time and again, people have loved us. Time and again, God continues to love us in spite of ourselves. So what's it mean? Well, it starts mercy with a look at God's unconditional Underline that word if you're writing, if you've got your notes with you. Unconditional grace and mercy. You can't earn the grace of God. It's already offered to you. Isn't that amazing? Wow, we're tired this morning. I love the fact that whether I do anything or not, God is still gracious. (laughs) This side of the room is awake. Good job. But that's not all, because on the human level, mercy goes a step further. It is best described as one's consideration. This is from the Holman Bible Dictionary. It's one's consideration of the conditions and needs of his fellow man. You see, when we talk about justice, we often look at the big, the macro perspective. There are great societal ills in the world. The sex trade industry and sexual human trafficking is horrible, and we got to stop it all. Amen to that, and let's keep working at it. But that can be overwhelming to us on an individual level, can it not? In the past year, I have been in four of the major trafficking cities in the world. And it's heartbreaking to see what is done specifically to women and children. It is a tremendous need. But there's also the other side. There's poverty in the world. But then there's the individual level. And what does that look next to you? There's a better than average chance the person next to you has needs that you're not aware of. And they might just need somebody to walk with them and offer them some mercy, some hope, and some love. Where do I get that concept? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Because it can be very inconvenient for us to walk alongside other people. People have just such wonderful intentions for me because they're trying to protect me. I think you all are aware that my body can be frail and I like to go at a certain speed and this and that. So often if I try, if I say to you, I'd like to spend time with you, your first response is, you're so busy. We don't want to bother you. Thanks for that. But stop. I'll tell you if I can't meet with you. Give me that chance to say no. Because nine times out of 10, I'd rather be with you than in a meeting. Not going to lie. There's good meetings out there. Trust me. But as you get to Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is explaining again who God is. His wrath. We don't like talking about God's wrath, but his wrath is also equated with his justice. And we need it. But he deals with sin and doesn't take it lightly. But in that, as you get to Romans 2, chapter or verse 4... Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, he's talking about all the ways we can be inconsistent in our lives. We judge others, but we don't hold ourselves to the same high standard that we expect others to live at. And he says this, he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, of his tolerance and patience, 
not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. I want you to think about that for a second. Because as you, as you pull back and you think about the scripture there, he's saying, do you basically spit on God by saying, God, give me kindness and mercy and, and all those things that I want, but I'm not going to give it away. Basically, what you're doing is you're showing contempt for God and his very heart of justice and compassion and mercy. But then Paul goes on to say, do you realize that kindness, the other word that mercy is translated in many of your Bibles, mercy, loving kindness are interwoven in the Hebrew. They couldn't quite figure out which works best, so you get both. And in so saying that, that kindness can show someone to the hope of God through Jesus Christ by repentance. So what you're saying, Mike, is that my kindness can actually help in my witness and my acceptance of others? Absolutely, yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. You probably can think of somebody you're not a big fan of right now. How dare you treat them with contempt? You're literally spitting on God. (laughs) I'm sorry to be that blunt, but it's the truth. You're in an office setting and there's that one person, maybe your boss, maybe your coworker, maybe your subordinate, and you can't stand them. And so you just try to sabotage them or you just think bad thoughts about them. You are actually spitting on God by showing contempt toward his precious creation. You walk alongside people that are poor and stricken and you say, well, you should have made better decisions with your life. You are spitting on God because God has been gracious to you and yet you can't offer the same to others. What if we were marked by kindness, by love, by the rights of others, not our own rights? That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching and that is what God commands. And it's an emphasis on an attitude It's an attitude that says, I am going to find joy in the journey. I am going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live victoriously. Not because I can do it, not because I can choose to get along with others, but because Christ in me is the hope of glory. And he can do it through me. And that's pretty exciting. There's one more part to the equation because typically when you find justice and mercy talked about in God's word, there's another word that doesn't follow too far behind. And Jeremiah uh, chapter 9 gives us a great picture of this again of what God is all about and what he's doing. And he says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. Okay, so if you're strong, good job. But don't make that your identity. If you're rich, use it. Don't be embarrassed by it. But don't boast in it. Don't be proud of your riches. They're all gods anyway. If you're really wise and you are a great creative problem solver, don't look down on others because you can figure out things and they're too dumb to see them. Because if you've got wisdom, that's a risk that you can take. Instead, let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. It's amazing because what does the Apostle Paul tell us to boast in? Christ and him crucified, right? We boast on the work of God in our lives. That's what we should be proud of, not ourselves. 
And that's an Old Testament concept. We think Paul is so original in his thinking. Nah, he just knew the Old Testament really well. And it shaped his theology as Christ was interwoven through all of the Bible. Remember, Pastor McCall taught us to pray, show me Jesus today in your word. Here he is, right, front, and center. Because I am the Lord who exercises what? Kindness. Which, which word was that? Come on, quiz. No, you, you got ahead. What was the Hebrew word for kindness or mercy? There you go. You're close. Justice is easier to say. Mishpah. Great. And then there's a third one. 36 plus times in the Old Testament alone, these words are connected together. Righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. But Mike, I like the word of God. and I read that there is none righteous, no, not one. I'm confused. You with me? How can we be righteous? God is righteous, right? Okay. But we're to be like him. How can we be righteous? Because righteousness, what does righteousness entail? Well, the word there, sadeka or sadek, uh, it, it to be right. It's the actions and positive results of a sound relationship within a local community. I put that in your notes because it'll take you a couple times to read through it to get it, but it's important to understand the concept there. The second, the right relationship created by God between himself and a person of faith. It refers to a life of right relationships. When we look at justice, the biblical concept of justice, if you put justice, mercy, and righteousness together, you get what is the trend today of calling it social justice. Why is it called social justice? Because it's relational. Because justice is every bit about two basic relationships, man to God and man to one another. And we have to be focused on both first to God, then to one another. Because you can do all the right things, but without the blood of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, your righteous acts are worthless. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2 tells us this. As I flip there. Listen to what Jesus teaches us about giving to the needy. The very concept of justice is it's fleshed out. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. In other words, there are acts that can be righteous and that are the right ones to do. Don't misunderstand. Do good things. But don't do them just for the approval of your pastor. Don't do them for the approval of your friends. If you do, if you do your acts of righteousness before men to have them seen by them, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. But when you give to the needy, don't let your your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving heart, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When our attention is focused on bringing Him glory and showing His kingdom to a world in need of hope, of help and provision and protection and care, we're not in it to say, look at me and how helpful I am. We're in it to say, I'm a sinner saved by the justice and grace of God 
And I want to invite you to be saved as well. I want to walk alongside you and help in any way I can. Because our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness has been, fancy word here, imputed to us by the blood and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. His body, his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we celebrate communion, to remember what he has done for us so that we might have eternal life, to have it fully and to have it forever and that we can then invite others to come in. He said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. And it will be counted to you as righteousness because your works are not your own. They're His. Joseph Addison says it this way. He says, justice discards party, friendship, kindred, and is therefore represented as blind. We've heard that said, right? Justice is blind. It, has, it shows no favoritism. It's a biblical concept. Remember Deuteronomy. It's true that justice is blind, but it's not deaf or mute. Justice hears the cries of the helpless and the voice of God. Justice cries out against a person's inhumanity to another person. In my many conversations across borders and in different locations, and even with pastors here and missionary workers all over the place, I've realized that there can be great need, great wounds, and great hurt, even among men and women that are following hard after God. And one of the things I realized is that some of them really struggle. I met with one a while back that through just the intense pressure and loss that they'd gone through over the course of 10 years plus of service that they were currently suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You know who usually suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder? Soldiers that have been in war. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are at war against the powers and principalities of the ruler of darkness. And we are called to press on, to take hold of Jesus Christ and that which he had died for, to free us. It is work and it is hard and it can be painful, but it will not stop. Remember what my friend Andy told me. He said, my biggest fear is being put away from where I can serve him. We are to seek justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God in righteousness that is not our own so that we can walk alongside those in need of help. What are we to do? Proverbs says it great. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Not certain ones, all of them. Go find them. Go chase them. Go love them. Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I'll finish with a story. Some of you have gone to New York City. Have you ever flown into LaGuardia Airport? Good, don't. It's kind of a gross airport. Of the three New York airports, it's the least one you want to go into. Uh, But once, uh, the LaGuardia Airport was named after its mayor, uh, Mr. LaGuardia. And he was the ex-mayor. But once, he was a judge. And he was providing at a local police court. 
and they brought a trembling old man before him charged with stealing a loaf of bread. He said his family was starving. Well, I've got to punish you, Mishpat, said Mr. LaGuardia. The law makes no exception and I can do nothing but sentence you to a fine of $10. This is years ago. That was significant. Then he added, after reaching into his pocket, and here's $10 to pay your fine. That's mercy. Then, tossing the $10 bill into his famous oversized hat, he said, furthermore, I'm going to fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a man has to steal bread in order to eat. (laughs) Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to this defendant. The hat was passed, and an incredulous old man with the light of heaven in his eyes left the courtroom with $47.50, and he paid his fine through Mr. LaGuardia. That's justice, mercy, and righteousness that is lived out to help fellow man. Are our eyes open to see it? You've got a couple of questions at the bottom of your sheets that I'd like you to consider. Uh, Our community group talked about these questions last night, so I've got to give them credit. The first question is simple. Who's our neighbor? If you wonder where that question comes from, look at the concept of the Good Samaritan. We talked about Samaritans last week and how they were seen and Jesus uses the example of a Samaritan to save the life of one that a priest and a Levite and the right people didn't bother loving. But who's your neighbor? You see, justice and mercy and righteousness doesn't just look after the poor and needy and the least of these. It absolutely does. But it also looks after your neighbor that lost a loved one recently that's struggling at work, that you're not even aware of what's going on in their life because you're too busy with other things. Who's your neighbor? And the second question, and I'm going to come back to this next Sunday. How can we see God work through us to come alongside others in need? Notice I don't use words like serve there or or help. I use what I believe is the right biblical concept. Because you're not just supposed to throw money at them and say, I hope this helps. We are called and invited through the word of God to come alongside others in need. You know, when we talk about justice and social justice and social equality, we think, I'm only one person, I can't change the world. Well, most of you are familiar with a woman named Mother Teresa, right? I got to be driven by where her ministry happened. And in all reality, her ministry happened in what? A three-block area? She didn't go to change the world. She went to help the poor and the outcasts and the least of these. And God changed the world. Will you do likewise? Will you go find your neighbor and ask, how can God work through us? It's not your work. It's his It's not your confidence. It's his. He'll do it. You just have to say yes. I just have to say yes to that beggar that walked into Costa Coffee. I will go back to that Costa Coffee in March and I will look for him. (laughs) I doubt I'll find him, but I pray that God gives me another chance. Will we 
walk justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Lord, may we be a people of your justice in inviting others in to the freedom that is found in you. Amen.